You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And our new article is out this morning talking about five signs that, well, this market might just be a bit overbought here. So just a tad exuberant. Uh, You know, it's been very interesting here over the last really month. As we were talking about back in August, we had been discussing taking some profits, reducing some exposure to to the markets because the markets had gotten very overbought at that point, of course, very extended. And it didn't seem like the markets were gonna correct anytime soon. They just kind of kept grinding themselves higher. And then of course, as as we were discussing back then, we'd said, hey, we've gone a very long time without a 5% correction. We've gone an exceedingly long time without a correction of the 200-day moving average. And we had had six straight months in a row of positive returns. So why am I telling you all this? Well, because In the next month, of course, that was where we had that very elongated 5% drawdown. And this was where markets, CNBC was running markets in turmoil every day. You know, it was up on the headlines and everybody's kind of freaking out. I'm getting lots of emails like, man, is the selling ever going to be over? And it certainly seemed terrible, but this was just a very normal kind of uh, decline that occurred in the markets and the correction. Well, it's interesting here that after that correction, and of course all the angst that came along with it at that point, um, markets are now back at all time highs. And it's very interesting now because investors are once again back to this, oh, markets are never going down again. You know, it's all good. We're gonna, you know, I listen to headlines and I listen to media people and they're like, oh, next year's gonna even be better. And you know, whatever happened this year is, is passe. Next year's gonna be even better. Well there's a lot of things that have to go into that right to make that occur it doesn't mean that next year can't be another strong year for the markets it certainly could i'm not saying it can't but you're going to need much stronger economic growth you're going to need inflation to go down of course um, you're going to need earnings to continue to grow and profit margins continue to expand at the pace that they're doing and these are all very small odds that that can happen uh, there's a lot of headwinds that are facing another year of exponential earnings growth. And again, remember, when we look at earnings growth and we look at these type of things, this is all coming off very weak annual comparisons. Remember, we're comparing third quarter of this year to third quarter of last year. So that was where we were just coming out of the pandemic, the pandemic-driven shutdown. I'll, I'll, I'll get that spit out. And you know we're just now getting people kind of really back to work fully, et cetera. So again, those year-over-year comparisons are gonna become much ter- tougher. And now with inflation running at over 5% in the near term, that's gonna really put pressure on profit margins ultimately. That's gonna you know, put pressure on consumer spending. And you know that's gonna also be problematic on a year-over-year basis because again, inflation on a year-over-year basis, we were comparing against very low levels of inflation in 2021. Now we've got very high levels of inflation going into next year. So again, this is all gonna make these comparisons and that's really what all the market's about. You know, it's, it's about comparisons. Where were we against this other mark? That's what we kind of look at. And psychologically, that kind of feeds right into that as well, is that we had this big correction. And so now markets are going up. And and as investors, we tend to forget that markets have these corrections on a regular basis. uh, And we get all kind of caught up in the moment, right? It's like when we've got a hot streak at the poker table, and we just kind of keep laying on the bets, right? So this is really kind of the thrust of the article that we've written today. It's on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, talking about these five signs to pay attention to. And we'll go through those through, through the show today um, as well, because also um, yesterday's article was kind of the prelude to this one, talking about 
the vast, you know, if you go back to 1900, right, and look at the data going back to 1900, we've got a very, very large extension in the markets that have never existed before. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are occurring in the markets that are not normal. And a lot of this has to do, of course, with, you know, the massive amount of liquidity that's been put into the market, of course, by the government. You know, we had the $1,400 checks. We had $5 trillion of liquidity kind of pumped into the market through various programs last year. Um, then we had the Federal Reserve doing $120 billion a month. That's one point, you know, $1.2 trillion in liquidity every 10 months, right? And so that's been just another massive amount of liquidity that's been finding its way into the markets, either, either directly or psychologically. It doesn't matter. We've talked about that before. Whatever the case is and however it, it is functioning, that Federal Reserve support is lifting asset prices. And in fact, the Federal Reserve came out yesterday. There's been a couple of talks this week. Richard Clarita was out yesterday. But the Fed making note that valuations are elevated. And going into next year, one of the risks to the markets, and this is from the Federal Reserve saying, look, if we have a resurgence of the virus and have to shut down the economy again, or if you know um, something happens that creates a shock to the markets or, or cha basically changing investors' attitudes about equities, the markets are very extended here and you could have a very, very large correction very quickly. And again, the Fed's kind of noticing this and this is a bit problematic for them because, again, if you take a look at that last FOMC meeting, which just happened last week, we, and we were talking about this, they opted to say, well, you know, inflation is a problem. We recognize inflation being a problem, but we're not back to full employment yet, so we're going to be very slow about hiking interest rates. And the reason for that is that if you begin to hike interest rates, you're going to slow economic growth. That's what interest rates do. They're like a break on economic activity. So if I increase interest rates, that means the economy will slow. And guess what happens to employment, right? Companies start to lay off employees and, and do those type of things to deal with a slower economic environment. So the Fed's really trapped between this inflationary pressure, which also weighs on the economy, and this idea of getting back to full employment. So, but by being cautious with that and by keeping the kind of the monetary policy and accommodate, accommodative policies very easy, they're also opting to keep the market inflated here, even though they recognize that there's a valuation risk. So it's a very thin rope that the Fed is walking right now. And, and the smallest type of policy error, whatever it might be, uh, underestimating inflation, overestimating employment, could all lead to basically a big unwinding of markets. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that's a recognizable risk. Even by the Federal Reserve, they recognize it. The market tends not to talk about it much. The media doesn't talk about it for sure because the media just keeps telling you to buy stuff because it's going up. Uh, that's very, that's very, that is a true case. But you know, right now, markets are going up, but they're very extended. They're very overbought and they're very optimistic. And this is kind of what we cover through today's article. And we kind of go through this idea, something that we'll talk about on the show today uh, in a little bit more detail. But, you know, this is the time when you start thinking about risk management. I had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday talking about this stretching of a rubber band in the markets and that, you know, there's a point in time that you have to, that rubber band has to relax before you can stretch it again. And that was very much the case back in August. 
Um, and then we relaxed the rubber band essentially through that correction in, in September and October. Now we're back to very, very stretched, even more so than we were back in August. So what causes the correction? What's going to happen that's going to make this massive run you know, for the exits by, by investors? Who knows? Um, could be something as simple as we've talked about before. Mutual fund rebalancing is coming up and that happens over the next really kind of the next month. It's going to start slowly right around Thanksgiving, picks up steam going into the first two weeks of December. Typically, you tend to get a correction, you know, one, two, three percent. And again, we're not talking about a major crash. And this is the one this is kind of the one of the misnomers that people make. They think when we talk about a correction, we're talking about the market crashing. We need to be all in cash. No, just a small pullback here. Relax that rubber band so you can a buy things cheaper and b enjoy the ride on the next trip up. We'll get into more of this after the break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Harbor. So on our website this morning, we've got uh, two articles out, one yesterday and one today, talking about, and they, and they kind of go in sequence together. One's taught, the first article from yesterday is talking simply about the deviation from exponential growth trends. And look, I, I know that's a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo and, you know, for you math geeks, you get it, but for everybody else, they're like, oh my gosh. Uh, look, all it tells you is, again, when we're looking back at history and you're looking at things that are abnormal to how markets work, you know, these are just those kind of warning signs that you should at least be paying attention to kind of what's going on. And, and, and look, right now, you know, we're having this conversation almost daily in our office. Um, you know, we've got stocks in our portfolios that are doing things that they shouldn't do. You know, we've got, um, you know, NVIDIA as, as an example and Ford and AMD and our, and our equity models that are trading at four and five standard deviations above their long-term means. They shouldn't do that. But they are. And that's just the way that the market's working right now. And it looks like it's going to continue to do that today. The market on Friday was up 18 days with only two down days. So out of the last 20 days, 18 days were up, two were down. How many times in history has that occurred? Exactly zero. Monday was 19. Today will be 20 if we finish the day on the positive. How many times has that occurred in history? Exactly zero. So the markets are certainly doing things currently that they shouldn't do. And there's a lot of speculative risk-taking that's going on in the markets. And there's plenty of evidence of that, right? I mean, you take a look at the, the number of people, long calls and long puts. And, and it's a massive deviation between the two. In other words, nobody's buying puts. Nobody's worried about downside protection, but they're buying all the upside, give me the, the juice participation that they can get, right? People are very speculative and taking on a lot of speculative risk. And look, I, I get it, right? I mean, right now earnings are earnings are doing great. Um, you know, margins are, are good. Everything seems to be firing on all cylinders. Really, not a whole lot to worry about here. The you know, COVID is declining sharply. Even the Delta variant; those cases are declining sharply. The kind of the world is getting back to normal, so to speak. So these are all things that you know, are certainly boding well for the markets in the economy short term. And, you know, the the downside to this, of course, is we're getting a big inflationary surge. And I thought this was interesting. Yesterday, MSNBC had a whole segment on discussing how inflation is actually a good thing, right? 
And now you got to go back, you know, and kind of, you know, in history, you know, last year we're talking, they were talking about there won't be any inflation. And then they were talking about there is no inflation. And then they're talking about now inflation is transitory. And now they spin that to say inflation's good. How is inflation good? Well, inflation's good, you know, if the economy's doing better and wages are doing great and, you know, all kind of, you know, things are working as they should, right? See, what we forget about inflation is there's good inflation and there's bad inflation. So let me explain good and bad inflation. Then you can decide as to whether the inflation we have currently is good. Good inflation occurs when you have very strong economic growth that's leading to higher productivity and higher wages. And where the growth of those wages and incomes are outstripping the rising cost of living. So in other words, people are making more money. The economy is growing very strongly. So people are getting paid more, they're, they're, and you've got real, true, full employment. And you've got full employment where you have labor force participation rates in the high 70 percentiles, not in the low 60s. Okay, There's a lot of kind of minute factors that go into this. But what you're looking for is economic growth that is growing, and, that's, and, and as economic growth is growing and people are producing more, right? So you get more people to work, and you, you, out of your 300 million in your population, you've got 70, 80 percent of them working, all producing which means they're all getting paid first. And then they take that money home and they're going out to buy stuff. So as that demand push is coming from organic economic growth, producers are having to produce more because they've got a lot of demand. And that is a sustainable level of demand because you've got rising economic growth. Of course, as I'm producing more, I've got demand outstripping supply. Then what I've got is I've got, I, I'm able as a producer to charge more for my services. That's good inflation. Don't mess with that inflation. Doesn't matter if inflation is four. If economic growth is eight and you've got 5% inflation, don't mess with it. It's fine. Problem is today, or I should say, let me not, you know, I don't want to, you know, caveat your opinion here, but taking a look at today's environment, we've got economic growth that just turned in 2%. You've got inflation at 5%. You've got wages that are rising on the low end of the wage scale because of a lack of supply of workers. And you've got a 61, 62% labor force participation rate out of a population of 300 million. And when you take a look at the number of people that are out of the labor force as a total and what we call no longer in labor force, that number is surging. And we all want to write this off as to people just, you know, deciding to retire. But given that 80 to 90 percent of people have less than one year's worth of salary saved up in the bank, it's hard to suggest these people are all just kicking off on the bucket and sitting on their front porch with their dog named Bo looking at the sunset. So in this environment, where inflation is outstripping wages and economic growth, is inflation a good thing? And I think if you ask most people right now, when they go to fill up their car at the, at the gas station or whether they go to the store to buy groceries or whether they want to go take a trip, whatever it is, right? The costs are going up markedly and it's going up faster than their incomes can support it. And they're not able to buy as much as they would like. 
And so where do they go to fill in the gap? And that's turning back to credit card debt, which is surging, by the way, right now, because of exactly that reason. So is that good inflation? Is that the inflation that we want to have in the economy? So assuming that you say, no, that's not the type of good inflation we want, that's actually a a type of inflation that deteriorates economic growth because it slows consumption eventually, then that sets up a very different type of market environment next year. Because the one thing that's been driving market returns over the course of the last couple of months is what we call margin expansion. Margin expansion means that the profit margin that companies have has been growing And why has that profit margin been growing? Well, we shut down the economy last year entirely back in March, June, you know, March, April, May. Started slowly opening back up. And, of course, what companies did is they just laid off mass numbers of people. They reduced their overhead dramatically by moving to more productive forms of operations, having people work at home. And this vastly increased the profit margin of the business. Now we're talking about having people come back to work reducing that efficiency, hiring more people, paying higher wages. So in the future, and we have these supply chain disruptions that are driving up prices. So in the in the next year, what is likely to happen with profit margins? Are profit margins going to continue to maintain their current level or expand? Or are profit margins going to decline as the cost of higher cost? whether it's employee cost, benefit cost, uh, price cost, et cetera, comes into the companies, and the companies have a choice. Either I can absorb that cost or I can pass it on to consumers. Now, assuming I can pass it on to consumers and consumers will pay a higher price, then I have some, I have some pricing power with consumers, then maybe I can maintain my current margin levels. Probably not going to be able to expand it much, but I'll probably can maintain it. However, what happens if I go to price, you know, pass on that profit margin or sorry, pass on that inflation uh, to consumers? What happens to my profit margin if they refuse to pay it? Or what I mean by that is, is they start buying less of my product, good or service. Then my profits are going to decline. So at some point, a company may have to make the choice of absorbing that, that inflationary cost. And of course, if they absorb that inflationary cost, in other words, they take the higher cost of product, they don't raise the price of their goods or services in order to remain competitive in the markets. If they don't, ra- if they don't raise their prices to offset the incoming inflation, then that erodes profit margins. So the big risk to companies over the course of the next really year, and when we talk about earnings growth uh, expectations that are very elevated, we talked about this on the show, I think, last week, that expectations are above the long-term trend for the first time ever in history, right? The expectations are that we're about to grow earnings faster than has ever occurred in history. Question is, is who is likely to get disappointed? The markets? or consumers. And that's one of the things that we overlook here in the markets and this is the one thing the Fed, the, the MSNBC is overlooking is that you know trying to make this narrative that inflation is good of course they're also trying to support the current administration. 
The problem with higher inflation is when consumers can't absorb it. And there's already evidence that we may have already reached that point. Be right back after the break. Uh, this morning, General Electric is going to be up about twenty percent ish at the open. Um, we'll see. We'll see how how this thing opens. But G- General Electric, which you know through several times in market history, was one of the largest cap companies in the world by market cap. Um, it's been at the top a few times, dropped off, and the last time it was there uh, was back in the early two thousands. Since the dot com crash, General Electric has been slowly kind of reorganizing themselves over time and after the financial crisis they did some more spinning off you know assets that were not performing well etc and of course you know general electric is this kind of giant behemoth conglomerate that was you know in aviation and healthcare then they spun out and got into financial services with GE capital and you know pretty much wherever they saw opportunity they were establishing a, 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 a you know kind of a beachhead and some of it worked out well, a lot of it didn't. And GE has been, you know, having a lot of struggles ever since. And in their latest innovation, and this is, of course, about uh, three and a half, four years now, um, since they were removed from the Dow Jones Index, you know, and uh, GE was in the Dow Jones Index for like 100 years, just to, as a reminder. Um, they were removed about three and a half, four years ago from the Dow, uh, G announced today that they're going to split into three companies. And this is after years of activist shareholders that have been pushing really for structural changes to try to unlock some of the value because they do have some very valuable assets, their energy business, their aviation business, the healthcare business does very well. And, and the problem with it being all locked up into one company is that you were math, the, the bad units were dragging down the good units. And so now the goal here is is to split the company up into three parts. So I'm going to read this for you just to make sure I get it all right. The split will create three separate companies focused on aviation, healthcare, and energy. The healthcare unit should be separated by early 2023, so it's not going to happen quick. Um, and the separation of the company combining GE's renewable energy and GE power units is expected to be finished by 2024. What remains will be the GE Aviation Unit. So once they get their healthcare, their energy, and their aviation spun out, there'll be three different companies. So if you want to just be in the GE Healthcare Unit, you can do that. Um, spinoffs are hardly a new thing. Of course, like I said, they've been really kind of shrinking the size of the company ever since the financial crisis. Uh, the GE name will live on with the Aviation Unit which will continue to be led by GE CEO Larry Culp. Originally, GE was founded in the late 1800s by Thomas Edison, um, of course. And, in, you know, so we'll see kind of what happens here. But the stock is responding very positively this morning because, again, if you own GE, you know, at some point in the future, you're going to get all three companies when it gets split up. But again, this is this is good news for GE. They've been they've been struggling for a long time. We'll see if this uh, you know truly works to kind of unlock some value. But if you've been long GE here, kind of as a shareholder, you're finally going to get a little bit rewarded today. The stock has you know been performing okay this year, but um, you know this is going to get a nice pop this morning. 
<clears throat> so we'll see what happens. Uh, but kind of an interesting story. I think we're going to see more of this activity. Uh, again, there's a lot of this activist investing going on right now for companies, and particularly in the energy space. Uh, we're seeing a lot of this. ExxonMobil, of course, recently uh, picked up new board seats from a company called Engine One, um, which is really focused on trying to convert ExxonMobil to more green energy production, less efficient, more costly. But hey, you know, we got to do more of that, right? Um, Royal Dutch Shell uh, is being kind of uh, pushed at this moment by Dan Loeb over at Third Point Capital for the same thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Trying to break up Royal Dutch Shell into two units, one being for legacy oil and gas assets that would be just paid out over time and eventually eliminated, and then new capital and new infusions of cash into the renewable energy side of the business, which is less efficient, less profitable, but that's where we want to start putting money. And if you can figure that out, well, there you go. Uh, but that's kind of the goal <laughs> by a lot of these activist investors trying to jump on this whole uh, bandwagon for you know clean energy. So we'll see what happens. You know, again, we saw and we talked about this before. You know, we saw this back in the late '90s. And here's a here's a quick take for you. By the way, in the late '90s, we were talking about how sin stocks were terrible, and that you know investing in cigarette stocks was you know a dead cat and you shouldn't you shouldn't own them anymore and and you know that's terrible here's a question since 1970s if you invested in philip morris or in apple which one made you more money philip a ten thousand dollar investment in philip morris has now made you 27 million dollars it has been an absolute killer and that's what dividends reinvested because you know, this is you know the, one of the problems when it comes to investing is we get off onto these themes of you know we we want to be conscious investors and, and we want to do this and that. Your investment does nothing when you buy a stock; it doesn't even move the needle for a company because you're buying so few shares. They don't even know you exist, right? And you know the problem ultimately is that you've got to take you've got to buy enough shares of a company to go get a board seat. So you know, figure out how much you've got to own of GE, as an example, or of Philip Morris or of Apple to garner a board seat. And if you can do that, well, you know, you can actually start influencing decisions. This is this is the whole premise behind Warren Buffett, right? You want to invest like Warren Buffett, you've got to buy enough of a company where you're on the board of directors and you can you can force the direction of the company. You buying a few shares of Apple or, you know, Tesla or whatever. You're not doing anything except giving somebody else money. You know, there's there was a guy selling his shares of Apple, and you bought them, and y'all exchanged money for shares. That's it. That's all that occurred. You're not influencing the decision of that company at all. So from that standpoint, understand what your job as an investor is, which is to make your money grow. That is your job. So forget all the fad investing. Forget all of the, you know, theme investing. It doesn't matter. Invest in where capital is growing. And right now, look, a lot of those themes are working, right? Because you got a lot of money chasing that theme. And so, yeah, take advantage of it. Just understand that those themes and fads, they fade. And what ultimately matters down the road is valuation. As we started out the show by saying, what you pay for a company dictates what your return will be over time. And the, and right now, in, in the marketplace, we have... Out of the S&P 500, more than 75 companies trading at 10 times price to sales. 
that is an astronomical valuation for companies. And the, and having 75 out of 500 trade at 10 times price to sales or more is a record by far of any other point in history. All it's telling you is that investors are paying way too much for money and for assets. And eventually, that, that doesn't play out well because the, the company, the earnings of the company and the revenue of the company cannot grow fast enough to support those prices. So again, regardless of what you think, your job is very simple as investors to make your money grow. That's it. No, no, you know, forget all the other stuff and invest accordingly. Manage your risk so that your money grows safely over time. That's your whole job. That's why having, you know, I'm writing an article right now called buying is easy, selling is the hard part. Because, you know, it's easy to buy stuff, particularly in this type of a market where things are just going up every day. It's like, I just buy something, it goes up. And, and that's, that's the great thing about a bull market. Bull markets cover up a whole variety of investing sins. And, and the bull market forgives you for making these sins. But ultimately, that when that market changes, the bear market side of the transaction is not so forgiving, Right. It's kind of like in, instead of a bull and a bear, we should have a devil and an angel, right? During an angel market, the angel just forgives you all the way, right? Oh, it's okay. I forgive you for making that investment. It's okay. Devil's not so forgiving. And he'll punish you every single time. And, and during a bear market is when that occurs the most. All those investing mistakes that you made, all those, you know, overestimations, all those, you know, uh, overpayments for valuations, all those things that you did that, that the, the angel was forgiving you for, the devil will punish you for multiple times over and will punish you more than you ever thought possible. And we've seen it before. If you've ever lived through a bear market, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm saying. And see, and the problem for a lot of, you know, people on television today and the media, as well as, you know, a lot of, you know, writers and, and you know, people on TikTok and Twitter and all these other places that are, you know, spouting, you know, investment advice and having trading classes and all this. They've never been through a bear market. If you go take, take a look, when did they start investing? Some of them just a couple of years ago. Some of them maybe 2011, 2012. They've never seen a bear market. They don't know what it means, and they don't know what happens during a bear market. But these are lessons that we only learn through experience. And once you've been through one or two or three bear markets, you learn these lessons. These are just simple investing axioms. It doesn't, you know, it's not rocket science, and it's not anything mystical, and it's certainly not bearish. It's just as simply an understanding, as I said earlier in the show, it's like driving a car. You understand the rules of the road, and you follow those rules. And if you do that, you get to your destination safely. And that is the whole point of investing. I'm Real Science Roberts, wrapping up the show for today. Be back tomorrow, of course, with Danny Ratliff right here. Be sure to go to our website. Our new articles are out. We have one on the Technically Speaking post of the day, which is talking about the five signs the markets are way too bullish and talking about long-term trends of market. That was Monday post. It's all there for you on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We're there. Also, get registered for this weekend's candy coffee. Love to see you there. We'll be talking about markets, money, and more. See you next time. It's a rich man's world